It's Over the Hump with Trails to Ales, where we bring you a bike thing, and a beer thing, and it's the thing to get you over the hump and into the weekend. What do you think? Let's talk about both bikes and beer. Right, bikes and beer? Bikes, bikes and, and beer. beer. Over the Hump with Trails to Ales. Welcome to episode number 130 of Over the Hump with Trails to Ales. This is Kevin, and on the other side of the line is Ken, and we're here to bring you another bike thing and a beer thing. But actually, this week, we're going to start with a beer thing, and I'm going to talk about that beer thing. So my beer thing is based on an article I, I happened to see in the June-July issue of Virginia Craft Beer, uh, for those that know the magazine. Um, I think there's actually regional versions of this magazine. I want to say when I was in Cleveland, I picked up a copy. I don't know what happened Ohio to Ohio Craft Beer? Yeah, there, okay. there was something like it, and Maybe I picked so. one up. It's like Blue, and... Blue Ridge Outdoors has Elevation Outdoors in Colorado. I mean, it's the same publishing company, yep. so you could find out. But anyway, exactly. it's cool you saw that magazine because I like you have to go to breweries or or beer stores to get that magazine, and you know during COVID that didn't happen as much as it used to. So it's nice to hear right. somebody talking about that magazine again. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was uh, combing through it and. On the very last page, I, I caught an interesting article um, under their section called Compliance Corner, which I don't know if that's a new one or not. I, I don't really keep the old ones. Well, I wouldn't mind keeping the old ones, but my significant other um, likes to just throw out things that are sitting around. So <laughs> if I don't hide it, it gets thrown out. I'm sure some of y'all know how that goes. But, but yeah, so the article... <laughs> uh, Staying on topic here. The article is a sit down with a Virginia ABC senior special agent. So I was like, special agent for ABC. Okay, this sounds interesting. Yeah. So I didn't know that, well, you know, ABC for, for Virginia, the Alcoholic Beverage Control Authority, they have a compliance unit uh, that works with all the different beer manufacturers, wholesalers, and importers and such um, in the industry. And uh, basically, this article calls them the industry gatekeepers. So they review applications, conduct license holder audits and inspections, ensure Tide House compliance, which I'll talk about that in a second, because I was like, Tide House compliance, what the hell is that? And provide consumer safety and much more. So before I go into the article further, so what is Tide House? Do you know what that means? What are you saying? Tide House or... Yeah. Like how, how do you like spell that? T I E D dash house. Tied house. I do not so know. Like a tied house. Like it's tied in a knot. So, so it's tied to some contract and it can't deliver outside yeah. of that contract or something. Basically. Yeah. In a nutshell, you, you hit it right on the head. So I looked into it really quick and I found an article on Winslow McCurry and McCormick. Uh, so that legal company is WMMlegal.com, uh, an article called, so you want to open a brewery in Virginia, the relevancy of Tide House regulations. Uh, so basically their, their description, uh, I'm just reading from their site. Prior to America's dark age, the prohibition in parentheses, it was common practice for bars or pubs to be tied to spe- specified breweries through contractual agreements, requiring them to purchase some or all of their beer from that brewery. Bars with these contracts were referred to as tied houses. 
So basically huh. they were tied to that brewery. Yeah, I hadn't heard um, that term. That, yeah, me neither. So I, I had to look it up. Um, and it's funny because in the opening paragraph of the article, it's actually spelled T-I-D-E dash house. But then down into the article, it, it's spelled properly a couple of times. So I'm like, it, it had me off you know, off guard even further when it's, it was like tied, like, uh, like uh, you know, the ocean tides. Yeah, like, like tide, tide house. I'm like, what the tide heck house. does that have to do It's where do, they process know? water <laughs> for breweries. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so it's, on the other hand, or on the contrary, uh, establishments with no such contractual obligations were referred to as free houses. Uh, and those are the ones that were able to purchase beverages from wherever they please. So over time, uh, this, this led to issues, um, such things as monopolies. And also uh, it talks about marketing practices that encourage customers to drink in excess. Uh, so because of these issues, the Tide House regulations were enacted. Um, so uh, basically back then, you know, in the prohibition days and, and shortly after, it was a little different because, you know, the breweries were servicing smaller areas geographically uh, versus what they do today. So um, the Tide House regulations required a three-tier three distribution system that makes up the, the breweries, the wholesaler, and the retailer. So the yeah. wholesaler, that's where we see like Legends and and uh, uh, what are some of the other ones? Like I think Eagle is another one around here. Right. So there, there's whole, so many. It's but the system that's, that that's, drove Bells out of Virginia. I mean, they're, they're exactly. back, but that's why they left because they didn't like their, right. in, their distributor. Exactly. So, so that's, I guess, basically how the wholesalers came about and the, the distributors, like that whole part of the process, why you can't just go from a, as a brewer, just go straight to like a Dixie liquor, for example, and just directly sell your beer um, to, and that's because of these tied house regulations. Yeah. That's like, so, um, what, what's that brewery? Um, uh, wasn't Star Hill. It was one of the breweries from Richmond opened up one um, down near Virginia beach, opened up a second brewery. And in order to get their beer from their brewery in Richmond down to the one at Virginia beach, they had to basically sell it back to themselves through their distributor. They can't even do like, they can't, uh, yeah. the one in, in uh, Virginia beach can't order from their brewery in Richmond and have it fulfilled that way. It has to go through the in-between. <laughs> Just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing something about that. But, uh, but yeah, so I, you know, I thought this was interesting. I, I learned a thing or two here that yeah. I was not aware of before. But, uh, you know, going, going back to the article for a minute here. So they, the special agent they interviewed, uh, he was actually uh, previously a Virginia State trooper uh, that decided to switch career paths, remaining in law enforcement, uh, but through Virginia ABC's Bureau of uh, – of, of, or a compliance authority unit or a authorities compliance unit rather. Um, so some of the other things that they do uh, that I hadn't already mentioned is uh, providing guidance and interpretation of alcohol laws and regulations, granting licenses, enforce industry regulations, which we talked about, deliver training on industry matters and offer expert guidance on Tide House issues. So 
the Tide House thing, it's it, it must be a pretty uh, um, you know relevant thing still, or, or you know there must be some uh, bad actors still out there, you know, if they're sure, still yeah. working on these types of regulations. But um, but anyway, so yeah, they, these guys do a lot. I, I never even heard of them before, but you've probably seen them if you ever went to an ABC store or Total Wine for that matter. Um, so yeah, uh, <clears throat> the article uh, goes on and just talks about, you know, how they handled the boom in Virginia breweries opening and how that's impacted things. Um, it, he said it definitely increased uh, our, our workload, but it provided more opportunities to uh, share the information um, and resource to a larger group of people within the industry. Um, one last note on here to wrap up. Uh, so the last question they asked him is, what is your favorite type of beer? <laughs> of course, they got to ask that question, right? Well, his, his response was interesting. So he says, in the nine years I've been with ABC, I've learned a lot about Virginia's brewing industry and the different types of beers available to consumers. As a regulator, every license is equally important. Therefore, it must remain neutral. So he didn't actually say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, why, would you, why would you answer that question? So, so, yeah, that is my beer thing. That's a good, like, I, that, that always interests me, the whole legal component of it, not because I'm just into law, but more like, you know, I always ask questions like you go to a restaurant and you go, well, why is the beer list like this? Or, you know, I read the book, um, you know, about selling out about uh, Goose Island and selling to AB InBev and the whole thing with that and how you know, there's so much of that three tier system that's just so dark and you don't know what it means for like a brewery to be able to get their bottles or their kegs on a truck. And I just have a recent example, like when you start talking about this, uh, it reminded me that we have a new taco shop opening up here uh, called Locals Tacos. And I, of course, I checked the menu and wanted to see, well, what kind of beer are they going to be serving? And I can tell you it's got like Miller Lite, Bud Light, um, Coors Light, um, Miller Lite, Modelo on tap, uh, Devil's Backbone and Blue Moon. So what are you starting to see there? It, it's a tied house because, right, they, they, whatever, whoever they got their contract with to bring in the beer they said oh yeah we just you know bring in beer and you know we want a couple of uh, quote-unquote air quotes craft beer so of course with their <laughs> their Budweiser they throw in Devil's Backbone which was once an independent craft brewery here in Virginia uh, it's now owned by AB InBev they got Blue Moon on there and they have like they have Lagunitas well Lagunitas is owned by Heineken um, Coors Coors is also not an independent. I mean, it's just, it looks like a tied house to me. It's just like, maybe it is, maybe yeah. it isn't, but I mean, maybe, you know, maybe that legal term isn't what you would call it, but I'm just saying like, wow, that beer list has nowhere to go. <laughs> you know, it's right. like, they're not, there's no buyer at that restaurant going, let's bring in some, where are, oh, we're, we're, we're in, uh, Fairfax County, let's bring in some Fairwinds or let's do something cool. Like uh, bring in twin pansy because like they're a local and nobody has them. That would, you know, it'd be cool. We'll bet we sell, you know, a few kegs of that or whatever it might be. It's just, I don't know how it works. I don't know how legally they do it, but you know, I know like bike lane brewing, very small brewery has their kegs on tap at a couple places. And I don't know how that gets arranged. Like what's the third party that that restaurant or, 
whatever it has to go through to get that keg. They can't just walk up right. to Reston and pick up a keg and drive it over. I don't think. I don't think Bike well, Lane can sell a keg out of their brewery to a restaurant. I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing here. But, you know, if 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 I open a pizzeria or a taqueria, you know, I have, you know, my top 10 list of breweries that I would definitely reach out to and, and get a keg of to have it on tap. So would I need to go through a distributor at that point or can I go to them directly? Because I, I feel like, you know, I've seen beer delivered by the brewery to locations before. So I don't know. Yeah, I think Maybe so too. To well, you know what? They, the, uh, the distributors often have trucks that are branded with different breweries that they represent too. They aren't That's necessarily true. the brewery's truck, but they'll throw um, – you know, a port city logo on there or something, but it's not necessarily a port city truck. I don't know for sure. Right. So I think we should maybe get somebody from the industry on our show sometime to talk it through. I'd love to hear from the third, the middle tier. I'd love to hear from the distributors, the value they believe they bring. And I do believe they, I mean, they've, we've talked to them before. They do have, I mean, they have great knowledge of the beer industry and who knows if a restaurant didn't say, hey, we just want to have a good range of beers that will sell lots of volume and we don't want to spend high end for the kegs in our first year. Maybe next mm-hmm. year we'll add, a, you know, more premium brands, you know, like Aslan and we'll sell those for $8 a pint instead of the 5 $6 a pint we get for our Modelo and Pacifico and Bud Light or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So we have to ask that we have more interviewing to do good beer thing. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that, that started a conversation that could last a long time. So we've talked a few times about the bike boom that spurt was spurred on by the COVID pandemic and in April of 2020, bike sales were up 75% from the previous year. And bicycles you know, that were being sold were pretty much the kind that were for family use or neighborhood riding or the ones at the lower end of the scale, the more affordable bikes. Those were the strongest year-over-year sales gains in that year. And then it was also said that you know, lifestyle and leisure bikes that sold in the $200 range grew by 203%. So people were just like, I need a bike. They were going out and buy yeah. 200 bucks, boom, buy the bike. But mountain bike sales increased by more than 150%. And we know that there's no such thing as a cheap mountain bike. There's a cheaply made mountain bike, but you're still in for a few hundred bucks to get in with a new mountain bike anyway, even at Walmart, I would think. And then children bike sales were up 107%. And so the result of all this is, you know, there's, you know, lots of riders and would-be riders and people found out about shortages, shortages of bikes, bike parts, bike accessories, you know, anything, you name it related to bikes, there was a shortage of it. And like, for me, like one, I want to give like an odd example. You, you know, this, right. I couldn't find a uh, seat post collar in, you know, that I wanted from salsa. I couldn't find the salsa seat post collar. I mean, for a year, I looked for the thing. I could not find one in the 36.4 size that I needed. Found, found a color in purple that Laura wanted, but I couldn't find a 36.4 in blue that I wanted. Still haven't. 
but that's just a point. That's, that's an odd thing, but it's part of this whole supply chain issue. So first off, let's talk about why the shortages occurred at all. And then what it means, what this whole bike boom thing means in the big picture. And believe it or not, I'm going to tie it back to legal stuff like you brought it. This is the Trails to Ales Over the Hump Legal Edition. Um, yeah. So I read an interesting article uh, written by someone named Sin Tu and posted on Forbes website called Pandemic Bike Shortage Gearing Up for Better Supply Chain Visibility. Now, I'm not going to go into a bunch of supply chain stuff, which we could, like I did a whole thing on malts, remember, <laughs> and the supply chain issues there. Mm -hmm. But this, this is interesting, though, because I didn't realize this because I wasn't into mountain biking in the 80s. But it's apparently back in the 80s, to reduce cost and increase efficiency, the bike industry started shifting their production to plants in places like Taiwan and China. And as a result, then in the years since, the bike business in Europe and the U.S. became almost totally import dependent. Now we know there are some American made bikes for sure. And I'm sure there's some European, well, we know there's European made bikes too, but in general, the big bulk of bikes are made not in America, not in Europe. Due to this then like you got complexity in the, in the supply chain uh, even before the pandemic. And then nobody took it really seriously until the supply chain just absolutely collapsed during the pandemic. So companies, who work with mainly pre-orders in order to keep stock numbers low, right? They don't want to have a bunch of inventory on their floor. They really got crunched because the lockdown came, production stoppages came, and then they couldn't get supply. So like our local bike shop here, the bike lane, they were a Trek shop and Trek obviously was well stocked up compared to some other places. So the bike lane could still get bikes in, but if you wanted a new order of a new model you were going to wait months to get it but they could they were able to ramp up and bring in tons of bikes to sell to all the parents who were desperate for something for their kids to do when the lockdown first started but then that whole pandemic curve flattened and then production got ramped up again so then we have a shortage of raw materials like steel aluminum and you got a big delay for components and you know like electronic components stuff you know microchips are in short supply too and so bikes that might've been planned for the spring weren't going to be ready until the summer. And I heard of people ordering bikes in the spring 21 and they're not going to get their bikes till 2022. And so you have to factor in the issues, you know, like available transportation capacity, the container imbalance and you know, the reduction of capacity in shipping. And all of this um, is that even if they could make the bike, some of them couldn't make it to this country. So products end up waiting to be shipped for weeks. So that's why things are backed up. And it was just more to the picture that, you know, I always thought, okay, company X can't buy bike frame Y because da, 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 da. But it, I didn't even think about the whole shipping piece and everything else in there. So then we have this whole supply thing, but people bought a bunch of bikes. Who's out there riding? So you've got commuters a big increase in commuters riding bikes and you've got recreational riders. So commuters apparently, and then this is again, what I read in the article that commuters got encouraged to bike because there were fewer cars and cities closed off more lanes to promote biking as a safer, you know, more socially distanced way to get to work. And then the recreational cyclists, you know, with gyms being closed and everything, then lots of folks turn to bikes as a means of getting exercise. And this is why I know you and I have talked about this, Laura's talked about this. Uh, 
there's probably a lot of used bikes going to come on the market <laughs> over this winter, yeah. right? Where people are like back at the gym or whatever, it's cold. They've got this $2,000 bike, $4,000 bike around here um, sitting and like, hey, I'm going to sell this bike. We'll see. Stay tuned. But mm-hmm. then in June 2020, back a year ago again, more than a year ago, demand suddenly spiked for the higher end bikes not just your typical commuter bikes or recreational bikes, the bike companies, you know, then couldn't keep up because now they're buying the high end bikes. Well, let's get, take a look at us here in the U S where it comes to bikes and transportation. The car is king here, right? So, so we've got this huge uptake in bikes, uptick in bike sales and people out on the trails using them. And we have a transportation infrastructure here that's been optimized for, not bikes, right? So we've pretty much been putting all of our big federal dollars into making life better for driving around in our cars and taking trains and buses. Uh, and that was true up until around 90, 1991, where some dollars started going into active means of transportation. So that's like why around here we have some pretty decent bike trails, pretty decent, but I'll get your comments on that in a minute. Uh, so we, we have some trails, we have some bike lanes, and but then the pandemic came along and it increased the demand for all these bike friendly routes and now you had people realizing what i think is a weak spot in our trails over here but i'm not going to say because i want to hear what your opinion is uh but some cities like seattle already had bike improvements underway and they were able to adapt they were able to take like they had this program called 25 miles um well they had 25 miles of this program they called stay healthy streets where they took some over some streets that had car traffic on them and made them not available to cars. And then other cities around the world, like, uh, like Bogota, London, Madrid, uh, they made efforts to add more safe bike routes. And then the data shows that as a result, the average trip by bike is getting longer. And the data shows that where there's increased biking infrastructure in business areas, there's also increased sales and increased employment. So, why aren't we doing more to support cycling as transportation? Well, you can probably guess. What do you think? Why aren't we doing more to support cycling as transportation as a country, like with you know federal and state money? Um, I mean, is it because everybody's working from home right now? Hmm. Okay, I hadn't thought of that. That's true. Like you mean saying like people aren't? Yeah. So people aren't commuting as far or as often as they were before the pandemic and now it's more for recreation only i see so so there's not so much a demand for the day-to-day commuter yeah Yeah, that's a good point i hadn't thought of that one see that's why i asked you but also while we're on (laughs) the topic what's your feeling in general about bike infrastructure in our area northern virginia dc and maryland it's pretty good around here if i must say i mean if i compare it to my hometown in florida you know it's it's like a night and day difference but i mean it's more suburban there but you know they had a rail rail trail through the county um that i grew up in that was nice or that is nice and a couple other ones but nothing like the trail systems we have around here yeah that can actually connect you you know in some some uh, places door to door from your house to your job. Like, like my last house, you know, I was a quarter mile from the four mile run trail 
which connected me to the Mount Vernon Trail or Custis, which I could ride all the way down to DC and or, or Roslyn, you know, right to my office, you know, which I used to do. See, um, perfect. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was either bike lane or bike path. I'd say 95% of that, that route. Good point too. bike trail, bike path, bike lane. There's lots of different types of bike provisions. And I think that's an important yep. distinction. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I feel overall that we are very fortunate here that for the most part, we have some very good bike commuting options. Like you can, if you can get to the right places in Northern Virginia, you can ride your bike into DC without having to deal with much traffic. But I do think a weak spot in our bike infrastructure, well, a couple, one is that almost always you're going to end up dumped into traffic in a weird way somewhere. Like they never, they just haven't quite figured out end to end, keep me safe on my bike. And I mean that as a adult with parent, you know, and a parent of adult children, um, it's yeah. not a problem now, but if I was in your situation, you know, and I think of families going out to ride bikes with kids, you know, the parents know how to be car savvy, be aware of cars or whatever. You don't want to get dumped out on a road with your kids. <laughs> so I think there are some weak spots there. And then the other weak spot to me is you can get where you're going on your bike, but you can't park your bike safely. Like so many mm. places, like even the shopping center closest to me, which is only a mile away, I would go up there way more if I could ride my bike up there and park it somewhere safe. Well, they don't even have bike racks there. And even if they really? did, you know, I don't, I've, I talked about it years ago when uh, Todd first moved the bike lane over there. I'm like, can't they put bike racks there? There's nothing like I used, you're, you're, you're chaining it to a bench or, or a trash can or something. It's mm -hmm. like, they, they aren't prepared and they should be like, make it comfortable and friendly for bikes to come. So that's part of the picture. The other picture, and this is where I was going next is the thing that you have to have to push bike infrastructure is money and political willpower and probably political strength for that matter too. And so like the money for transportation in general in this country comes from gas taxes and most of that money goes back into automobile infrastructure. And let me just say right now, I am not complaining about improvements in automobile infrastructure, even though that sounds hypocritical, but you know, we love to go ride and have great beers in Richmond. And that 93 miles can feel like 196 miles in a heartbeat, <laughs> right? Because, because of the yeah. traffic. So they're building more lanes, they're building more bridges, they're doing more. And eventually, though, that is not sustainable. So a part of that, though, with the tax money is it's a logical argument that if the money comes from fuel tax, it shouldn't go into bike infrastructure. And I know I've heard drivers argue bikes shouldn't be on the road because they don't pay for the road. And I always say, but now I'm one less car on the road. So aren't I making it easier for you to use the road? But we'll We'll not right. go there right now. I'm not arguing with that, about that. I was just interested in the whole money component of this. And so if you can get the money, you have to decide where to put those bike lanes. And you're probably not going to be surprised to learn that white people and higher income people have better access to bike infrastructure. So already we're saying, you know, there's some people who don't have a choice whether to use a bike or not. And we're not giving them the same good trails 
to use that we have. Now, DC is good because DC, as you know, like DC goes through all the neighborhoods with the trails, you know, along the river and such. But this just leads me to what sent me down this whole lane <laughs> to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, I read an article by a guy named David Zipper called What If Congress Helped Bicyclists and Not Drivers for Once? And in it, he talks about how there's some action coming from the federal government focused on supporting and even promoting bike use right now in the current budget cycle. So he wrote, and this is a quote from the article, if anything, the feds have probably nudged Americans towards driving instead, providing little incentive for states to build bicycle infrastructure and distributing far more lavish financial subsidies to auto owners than to cyclists. But then he goes on to explain that the House Ways and Means Committee, that's our budget committee here in the U.S. Congress, on the House side, approved a proposal to expand the commuter benefits program, which currently exists. But what it does now is it lets employees set aside $270 a month tax-free for workplace car parking or transit passes. But it doesn't include anything for biking. So what they're saying is starting in 2022, the proposal would let employees allocate up to $81 a month tax-free for the purchase, finance, lease, rental, including bike shares, um, improvement or storage of bikes or scooters used to get to and from work. So that's almost $1,000 per year. Not a ton, but it's something. But then here's where things get weird or wacky, in my opinion, just like our three-tier system we were talking about with beer. Um, And this is why I think the whole expression... I'm from the government and I'm here to help is so laughable, right? It's, and I'm sorry to any of my federal government working friends who may be listening, because I don't mean that entirely sincerely. I think the government could do good things, but here's where the government shoots itself in the foot. In this bill, they put in an e-bike tax break or an incentive, and they're making it available only if you make less than $80,000 a year. And that's not why the problem yet. And the house then put in other limitations due to a forecast issued by another part of Congress, the Joint Committee on Taxation, which increased the cost of funding the whole credit, tax credit piece of it, because right, if you're going to give a credit, you got to get the money. They, they estimated that it would be $7 billion over the next decade. So the, get that. So the committee that, you know, that's projecting the cost of this thing is claiming that e-bikes would skyrocket 11 times over the next 10 years, reaching $1.2 billion, equivalent to around 3 million people who make less than $80,000 a year buying e-bikes that probably cost $3,000. That just doesn't make any sense, right? Meanwhile, on the, the whole subject of shooting themselves in the foot, and this is like, come on, politics, really? Meanwhile, The Ways and Means Committee, and this is uh, from the article by Zipper again, they want to further sweeten the pot for electric automobiles. Again, I'm not against this entirely. I just think it defeats, like, if you're going to try to encourage people to do one thing, why are you then giving a tax credit of up to $12,500 off the price of an electric car, which is an increase of almost $7,000 from the current tax break? And while the e-bike tax credit would be unavailable for those with an income of over $80,000, anyone making up to $400,000 can claim the value of the electric vehicle credit. So what we've done is we've said, if you make more than $80,000, buy an e-car. Right. <laughs> if, you, right. if you make less, buy an e-bike that you can't afford for $3,000 anyway. So it's like yeah. either way, it's like the, the whole thing makes no sense at all. So yeah. 
not to mention, at least in, in the Northern Virginia area, I feel like a majority of this area, depending on your industry, probably makes over $80,000. Right. You're certainly not buying a $3,000 e-bike if you make less than 80 in this area. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, you're yeah. spending it all on housing. Unless, yeah, unless uh, you're just a, a lifelong bike packer and you use right. the e-bike to carry your home. <laughs> it's just crazy. So, so finally then, if you do manage to get this nice new bike and you want to have a safe place to ride it, well, then that budget deal, you know, the language in it includes some sections that could provide funds for new bike lanes. Um, just like they have like $4 billion to mitigate damage done by urban highways slicing through low income communities and another $4 billion for quote unquote community climate incentives to fund projects that reduce emissions. So I suppose they lump bikes into that. But here's where I'm ending this. It's like politics is going to get in the way anyway, right? So if it goes from the House, it has to go over to the Senate. We all watch Schoolhouse Rock and we know that a bill is, doesn't become a law unless, you know, the House and Senate agree and, you know, it gets signed into law. So they're, they're going to want to shrink the size of the total budget bill. I mean, we're hearing that in the news now. So I'm guessing that bike infrastructure is probably not one of those things that's going to have enough votes or get enough attention to make the cut. Like when they're going to go, oh, what are we keeping? What's this bike crap? We're going to take it out. But we'll see. Because uh, it does make the case that there's strength in numbers. And we need to use our numbers and try to influence our politicians. So like it's the headline grabbing stuff and we don't have to talk about what all those things are right now, but we know what's in the news every day. Bike infrastructure is not in the news every day. And so these politicians, many of them, right, they ha they're trying to weed through this multi-page budget. A lot of them are going to be advised by staffers who look at okay, I'm the person who's looking at transportation and the environment. I'm the person who's looking at, you know, crime and whatever. And then I'm advising the politician on what to vote, right? And he's, he, she's going to ask me a few questions, whatever. So what we need to do as the bike advocates is like actually call these politicians. Let's call our politicians and send them emails and say, you know, hey, we know this stuff is in the budget. We'd really like to see it make its way into law because it would sure be great for all of us. Cause we just got to let them know that we ride and we vote. All right. That's my bike thing. Well, that takes us to the end of another edition of over the hump with trails to ales. We would call this our legal edition because Kevin yeah. talked about the, uh, Tied houses in the brewing industry, um, which was quite interesting. And we could go on forever talking about the odd rules that keep um, breweries from just selling their beer wherever they want to, but also maybe protecting some people in the, in the um, overall approach. So we'll have to look into that one more, as well as uh, legal issues, politics and bike lanes. Talk about how money gets um, into the hands of states and localities to build bike lanes and infrastructure for bikes and why we need it with all the increased interest in biking these days due to the boom during the pandemic. All that, we hope, piques your interest to learn more about it. Share what you think with us. You can find us on Instagram at Trails2LsVA or you can email us at Trails2LsVA at gmail.com. 
And if you don't do any of that other stuff, then just get out, ride, enjoy some beers. And when you do, remember to ride fast. Over the hump. Over the hump. And drink slow. Over the hump with Trails Tales. How slow are you going to be drinking at Snallygaster? <laughs> Definitely be pacing myself. <laughs> it's going to be so oh. hard. It's so hard. Yeah. You start looking at that list. And, oh, my God. You just want to go. Oh, you talk about four ounce fours, right? He's like, right. boom, gone. Boom, gone. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like a we shot. have to. But we have to. We have to uh, keep an eye out. That's why I hope we can get a list and pick like our ultimate halves and then the you know, nice to haves. And then, you know, you're going to get out there and be like, oh, and just something catches your eye and you want it. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping too, you know, because like reading about what they're going to do, you know, to in observance of COVID, they're only having like 50% capacity or allowing 50% of their regular capacity. So hopefully that means even for the VIP, even less people to be competing with to go after the beers we really want to try, you know? Oh, wow. I didn't realize they cut it to 50%. Oh, that's... That's what I thought I read. Oh, you know what? I think they were selling 50 You're right.